right. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. The first show from the sailboat albatross. Uh, you may not recognize the background. I am not in Key West at the moment. I am in beautiful Beaufort, North Carolina, uh, and I am happy to be here. I am very, very excited for this episode. Uh, we've got Benjamin Keller online. Ben, just want to say like a quick hello. Welcome to the show, my man. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. This is going to be good. We are going to be talking all about languages, essentially uh, overcoming the fear of learning a language, uh, everything that's entailed. And the reason for for those that are watching, the reason that uh, I asked Ben, I reached out to Ben numerous times, actually trying to um, uh, trying to convince him to come on and be interviewed. I uh, uh, I wanted to speak with him because he is an instructional designer for Rosetta Stone, and he is somebody that understands the nuance of language, how difficult it can potentially be, and and how humans and psychology adapt to language, how they communicate. And that is all something that you have to know. And of course, Rosetta Stone is, uh, is, a, is a massive company that has perfected this. So, uh, so Ben, let me, let me tell everybody a little bit about your background sure. uh, and why I'm so excited that you're here. So you hold a master's degree in German from the University of Illinois, Urbana, Champaign. Is that how you pronounce it, by the way? I was uh, curious about that. Urbana. Urbana, Urbana-Champagne. Mm-hmm. You're currently an instructional designer at Rosetta Stone. You're focusing on immediate and advanced institutional language learning curriculum. And uh, you're a native of northern New York. You've you've got this uh, language and music background, basically to understand, I like how you put this, a wider sense of the human condition, which is really like what language is all about. I, I completely agree with that. You've got two cats, <laughs> Pip and Theo. Uh, they might an make an appearance here at some that, point. That's perfect. That's perfect. I was, uh, you know, when I, when I did this show from Key West, I did it, of course, live like this. And the craziest things would happen. Pets would show up. I had this <laughs> rooster named Elvis that would, would show up every once in a while. Everybody started to get to know him. So, dude, uh, if Pip or Theo shows up, they'll be in good company. No problem whatsoever. Uh, so, anyway. Pip's sitting on the floor right behind me right now. Perfect. We'll see. <laughs> so yeah, man, it is so great to have you here and uh, and welcome again. Welcome again to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. So uh, I like to start off by uh, where are you in the world? I mean, sure. Uh, I live in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Uh, that's in the Shenandoah Valley uh, for folks that know their way around uh, Virginia. Um, about a half hour east of us is Shenandoah National Park. About a half hour west is George Washington National Forest. So plenty of outdoors opportunities here, which is one thing I really like about it. But uh, I actually moved here for my current job uh, from the Northern Virginia area. Um, you know, uh, Rosetta Stone, uh, been around a leading language learning program for 30 years. Uh, our app ha- ha- currently offers 25 languages uh, pretty much to people around the world. So, and that's I why used, I'm here. I used it for Hebrew way back in the day when I was learning Hebrew. Yeah. It was a huge, huge help. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I have colleagues that will be very happy to hear that. Yeah. They might be listening right now. Yeah. Good. (laughs) Good. Well, thank you colleagues. Uh, yeah, it was, it was an incredible help. And, uh, and it was, it was right on the cusp. This was back in like two, like early two thousands. And it was right on the cusp when everything started going digital. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so you no longer had to go to the kiosk 
and like buy the actual box and put it in yep. a CD-ROM drive and stuff. It was all like shifting to the internet and uh, it was a huge help. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, people, I think people still think that we sell yellow boxes and I think we do sell <laughs> yellow boxes, but there's nothing inside them. Right. Uh, it's just a code for it's a, like a web page. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, and let's see. So put this up, right? Music is the international language. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, there you go. Uh, as far as languages are concerned, you, you can't get better than music. Yeah. And, you know, my personal experience, there's a lot of relationship there. Um, you know, I, I like to try to characterize uh, learning a language as analogous to learning to play a musical instrument. Because it's really not a set of facts per se. It's not like going into a history class and saying, okay, I've got to memorize these dates and names and, and relationships and whatnot. But it's more a skill in real time, like we're doing right now. Right now, we're practicing our own language faculty. Uh, and that kind of real-time nature of it, that kind of performative quality of it, very much like uh, learning to uh, perform music and then obviously performing it. Do you, what do you, do you play an instrument? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm in a community wind ensemble, uh, playing tenor saxophone, which I hadn't, uh, played since I was in college, uh, uh, longer ago than I'd care to admit. So, uh, <laughs> doing that, uh, before the pandemic, I did a thing called rock lotto, uh, which is, uh, here locally, we draw names out of a hat, make bands and, uh, have a little battle of the bands with randomly assembled bands. So I played some saxophone for that too. That was a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's awesome, man. It's too bad. It, like you can't grab the sax. We do like uh, a live jam or something. I got the guitar right there. So <laughs> next time, next time. Uh, and by the way, Christine, so Christine, uh, she's awesome. Uh, and she says her dad uh, still brags about the yellow box. Great. That's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Christine, I'm curious what your dad, which language your dad learned. Uh, so German. So you and I actually, you studied abroad and, mm-hmm. um, and I have some experience with that as well. What was it like uh, studying in Germany? Is that basically where the language roots started for you? Uh, well, I guess if you're like, why language, right? That's always the question I get. Uh, the conventional answer, I suppose, would be that I showed an interest in aptitude for a language at a pretty early age. Uh, shout out to my parents for getting me uh, a dictionary when I was in, uh, seven years old for my seventh birthday with a little inscription from my mom saying, may the gift of words be forever yours. Uh, so, uh, yeah, who knew at that point that that's what it was going to turn into. But, yeah, when I went to high school and college, I kind of wondered where that interest and aptitude could take me. And Germany is one of the places it did. Was that your first choice? Like, uh, did you always just kind of sort of like glom on to German? You knew hmm. that it was going to be that or? Well, I took French and Latin in high school, uh, and I uh, definitely benefited uh, from those experiences, but uh, my family heritage is largely German, uh, and I was always really curious about the language as a result. Um, So that's kind of the direction that it took me uh, through college and grad school. By the way, like in Germany, where in Germany? Is it Eastern or Western? Mm -hmm. Uh, both of them are in the former West Germany. As an undergraduate, I studied at the University of Konstanz, which is on the Swiss border. Uh, and in grad school, I studied at the University of Regensburg, if I can get that out still, uh, <laughs> in Bavaria uh, at, for a year. And uh, both of those experiences were kind of uh, life-altering. It, well, 
<clears throat> how do you pronounce how do you pronounce the university regensburg Reg- like so like a like a rolling of the tongue like a r in spanish yeah it's actually well it depends so in germany there are kind of two different r's neither one of which corresponds to the american r sound uh so in the, the standard language you roll the you roll your tongue at the back of your throat which is kind of hard for us to do but um uh, I had a, a professor in college who was really good at, at helping us practice that sort of thing. And he would stride into the classroom and throw his head back like he was going to gargle, but with no mouthwash. And it was like, <laughs> and point at somebody to, to, to then put them on the spot. So that's the high German, the standard German R. But then regionally in Bavaria, you'll hear a flipped R that's more like what you might think of with a Spanish R that's at the, at the tip of the tongue. Man, I, uh, I've tried, I tried a little bit of German and, um, and I found it incredibly challenging, at least, at least coming from like a Spanish and French and sort of romance language background, the, Mm -hmm. uh, like the compounding of different words into (laughs) one really long word was the, I think the, the thing that threw me at the very beginning. Yeah. And, you know. I was actually just working on some uh, instructional content for dealing with German compounds uh, not too long ago. And, you know, the, I suppose the, uh, the valuable thing is to, A, look for the little connector pieces uh, between the compounds. So usually you'll see like an S or an EN uh, between them and then look for the words you recognize. And then, you know, just kind of break it down. And that makes it a lot less intimidating. Take things one piece at a time, which I think is a theme of some of your other uh, conversations, if I'm not mistaken. It is. It very much is. Uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned the word intimidating because, because I think that I'm sure that everybody watching this right now, and if, if you agree with me, throw it into the chat and we'll, um, and I'll bring it up on the screen, uh, wants to learn some kind of language in their mind. They are like, God, I wish I knew Spanish or, you know, I wish Mm -hmm. I could speak Japanese, you know, and read anime or something like that. Uh, but, a lot of people are held back because they're so intimidated, not necessarily by the reading or the writing, but I think the speaking of it mm-hmm. and essentially feeling embarrassment of like butchering something in front of a native speaker. <laughs> Do you feel that same fear? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, my first semester, uh, in Germany, I had had three semesters of German to that point. Whew. Uh, Everything, everything was a challenge. Just going to open a bank account, which you have to do in order to get your visa. Um, you know, I went into the to the bank, and while it's true that a lot of Germans speak English very well, you know, the the more regional, less cosmopolitan the area you're in, uh, and maybe the age of the person you're interacting with, and the type of transaction you're trying to. I asked the lady at the counter, and she's like, "Nope." <laughs> like, all right, versuchen wir das auf Deutsch. <laughs> Let's try that in German. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that? So when I was in France, you know, like French people, I feel get such a bad rap because mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they are portrayed as so arrogant. Like if you don't mm-hmm. speak French, then I don't want to deal with you kind of thing. But I lived in France for a while and I found that to be the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. If you just tried as hard as you could and maybe you screwed it up you got the respect and they mm-hmm, would work mm-hmm, with you. Mm-hmm. Was the German the same way? Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, I, I think different countries sort of have different responses uh, to, to those things. But uh, generally speaking, um, you know, if, if it's obvious that you're a foreigner, 
you're going to be expected to make mistakes. You, they'd be shocked if you spoke it perfectly. Uh, and, and so don't worry about it. Um, you know, learning a language is really kind of a humbling experience, or in my opinion, at least it should be. You know, there's always more to know than you're going to know. Uh, and making mistakes, even embarrassing ones, maybe especially embarrassing ones, it's <laughs> literally unavoidable. Uh, I had what's, a... Yeah, what's the worst thing? What's the worst? Have you got some embarrassing comments? Oh, jeez. Like- I mean, I don't know. If there's so many. It's hard to be pick a worst, worst one. But I was in a, a, a language class one time. This is kind of when I was getting my sea legs. This was right at the beginning of my first exchange. And it was a really small classroom, so it was really concentrated, focused work and whatnot. And, uh, you know, German, like English, uh, has a whole bunch of prepositions. Uh, and sometimes it's just kind of these fixed expressions and there's no logic to it. You just, with this verb, you use this preposition and you just have to kind of memorize it, unfortunately. Okay, um, before you go any farther, uh, for those that are watching that have heard the word preposition before but need a refresher, what is that? Uh, of, in, at, by... Uh, they're words that kind of demonstrate relationships between bigger words, okay. uh, typically between verbs and nouns, nouns and other nouns, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so German and English are closely related and, and they share a lot of structure like that. But these fixed expressions, it's kind of arbitrary, right? Like what, uh, what, what preposition goes with what verb? So we're going through practicing a list of these verbs. And, uh, one of them is, uh, uh, Sich sehnen, which is to long uh, for something or someone. And uh, I couldn't remember it. You know, we're going through the practice and I'm trying to remember what the correct uh, preposition that goes with it is nach. It it's literally translates to after in English. So it's you long after something. We have that expression in English as well. But I couldn't remember it. So I used the word auf. And my teacher, who was very nice, very empathetic just starts to giggle and the giggle turns into a cackle. And I'm just like, what, what did I say? And she's like, is he saying an, is he saying an auf, 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 like to be on top of, like to long to be on top of. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, Oh, didn't okay. mean it that way. <laughs> and so those are the relationships, you know, you're not, you're just trying to get the right word, right? You're not thinking about how you might put, <laughs> a somewhat questionable spin on something. You're just trying to get it out of your mouth. And so, you know, these things, they're kind of unavoidable. Uh, there was another time I tried to, uh, I had to buy an alarm clock while I was over there because I took my digital alarm clock and the voltage difference didn't work. This is before smartphones. So forget about smartphones uh, or cell phones for that matter. Uh, and I, I really, I people got, can even do that these days now. Yeah, I know. Like, right. So I, I go into this shop and I'm looking for an alarm clock and I realize I don't know how to say alarm. I know how to say clock, but I don't know how to say alarm. So I have to circumlocute, which is another thing that language learners have to learn to do. Think cleverly about the language you know. When you're in a situation and you don't know all the words, you're going to have to come up with a way to communicate to somebody else the, the specific idea you're getting at. So what, I said, what, what did you call that? Circum what? Circumlocute. So to talk around something. So uh, I will give you a very clear uh, uh, example here. So I was in the shop. I want to buy a clock. They sell clocks, but I want to make sure the clock has an alarm in it. I don't know a word for alarm because I didn't think to look it up before I left. Uh, And there's a nice old lady behind the counter. And I said in what I think was probably pretty grammatical German, uh, but it was not remotely 
what you'd call idiomatic. It wasn't the way Germans would talk, right? And something along the lines of, I need a clock that goes beep, beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she looked at me kind of quizzically for a minute and she said, einen Wecker. Sie brauchen einen Wecker. Uh, an alarm clock. You need an alarm clock. And that's how I learned the word for alarm clock. So in English, it's an alarm clock, right? It's a compound word with alarm and clock. In German, it's literally just a waker. It's a thing that wakes you up. Huh. And so even if I looked up the word alarm, I probably would have still gotten the word wrong. And I might have actually made it more confusing for her to figure out what I needed. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because you're trying to do this one to one, you know, direct transition from English to German. And a lot of times that just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of language learning also in a nutshell, right? Um, you know, the one-to-one mappings, sometimes they exist, right? Uh, you know, especially for physical objects, right? Like, uh, if this is, uh, uh, a glass in English, it's a glass, uh, uh, in, in German, for example, or ver, uh, in French. Um, but if you're talking about things that are more abstract, you can kind of throw that out the window because languages aren't set up intentionally to be perfect mappings from one to the other, right? Yep. Uh, I had a, a Latin professor in college uh, whose classes I really enjoyed. He was really good at making Latin and, and Roman history kind of relevant for, for modern life. Uh, and he, he would get really frustrated with students and be like, what does this mean? What does that mean? You know, as we're going through a poem or something like that. And he finally said, it doesn't mean anything in English. Uh, The Romans weren't thinking in English. Uh, They weren't thinking, they weren't thinking about English at all because English didn't exist when, when these poets were writing, like it was, the concept of English didn't even exist. Uh, The word might translate loosely to such and such, but even then it's going to be kind of imperfect. And, you know, especially with literature or anywhere where you've got to use language for nuance, like don't expect that mapping to be one-to-one. And that's got to be frustrating, especially for people that are learning early on, because they expect that one-to-one mapping. Like mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. they want, they want there to be a clear-cut answer. I, I actually, I found that, I found that concept. I just occurred to me as you were talking about this, like that concept of, of having to read context and and derive a meaning from something that may not be exactly what you imagined like your waker uh you know if you were to translate that into waker in english uh it could be a lot of things it could be an alarm clock or it could be some some dude that hosts wakes for people you know like (laughs) you just you don't know but uh but in engineering there was a very similar concept because as you go through school of course there are very clear-cut answers in the back of the book that you either judge whether or not you're right or you're wrong. And in real life, uh, those don't exist. There's no back-of-the-book answer. In fact, when you're when you're doing things and creating things that are new, you have to you have to judge on your own whether or not something is correct based on sort of your decision chain throughout yeah. the process. And, yeah, uh, and I feel like languaging language is, is a very similar thing. And by the way, so before we go any farther, let me write down cause, cause this is happening in the chat. Uh, so Christine says, uh, I think the, the first language is energy and people feel your energy and your intent to communicate. And I agree with that. 
I feel like it's the way, it's the reason why you can sit down and have a dinner with an Italian family and not speak any Italian and yet still feel like you've communicated with them all night, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, people like to feel like their culture is valued and that people are interested in it. Um, I went to Greece for a vacation uh, several years ago and I used our own product uh, to learn Greek because I didn't have anybody else to teach me Greek. Um, And, uh, you know, I didn't spend as much time probably on it as I should have beforehand, but I knew enough to be able to get through, you know, buying, uh, buying, uh, dinner, uh, and having conversations with travel agents because still had to do that in order to buy ferry tickets from island to island, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think the Greeks are so unused to, especially English speakers, uh, trying to learn Greek that like, I definitely had experiences on that trip that wouldn't have been possible if I had just gone over there and spoken English uh, at folks. Yes, they, they understand it. They totally understand it. Um, but, but when you show them that you're interested in their language, you're also showing them that you're interested in their culture. Uh, and, and that goes back to this energy you're describing. Like people get it when you're there, not just to, I guess, lie on a beach somewhere pretty, <laughs> but you're actually there to like learn and communicate and connect. Uh, people get that and they appreciate it. Yeah. The, there's a respect there, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and people really just, they, I mean, I would too. I mean, the same, the same goes for people that come from outside of the States that don't speak English. And when you can see that they're actually really trying to understand and you go out of your way to help them. Um, and, uh, and then uh, I'll put this up too, because, <laughs> because I told so when we're on the, on sort of the subject of embarrassing stories, like I, I certainly have a couple as well. Um, and one in particular that Christine is talking about because, uh, Christine is, is a stand-up comic and, uh, she actually, she actually teaches stand-up comedy. And I was in okay. one of her courses and we had to talk about some, some funny things. And one of the things that I talked about was this experience that I had, uh, living over in Spain with a, like a 65 year old uh, Spanish host mom who (laughs) I don't even know if I could talk about this really on this show. Like she was, she was very nice, uh, very matter of fact. And, uh, and anyway, she invited everybody, her entire family over for lunch. This was right when we had gotten there and I'm trying to make a good impression. And I'm, I'm I'm doing the best that I can to like make do with the Spanish that I had. And I was pretty decent at that time. And there was kind of a lull in the conversation. And I took that as an opportunity to be like, oh man, I am so gonna like impress this woman mm-hmm. with some killer Spanish <laughs> right now in front of her entire family of like twenty there's like twenty people around. Oh the wow. Right. And so, and of course, of course, I'm at the farthest reaches of the table from her. So whatever I say, I have to like yell. Uh, and I go to her, I'm like, ah, oh, Maria Dolores. Uh, her name was Maria Dolores. Uh, Sabes donde está el punto G? And el punto G, I thought at the time was this bar. It was like a pool hall thing somewhere mm-hmm. in Valencia. And I wanted to mm-hmm. know if she knew where that was. I did not translate that in my head before I said it. And I should have, because I basically in front of her entire family was like, Hey, uh, where is the G spot? 
And, <laughs> and so, and so everybody hears this, they're all just like forks drop. They just go silence. People stop chewing. Like it is, it's the tension is there and everybody looks at me and then they all turn and look at her. She is beat red. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what did I say? I'm like going through my mind a mile a minute, figuring out like, what did I say wrong? I figured it out. And, uh, and the most embarrassing part of all of this was that how she handled this situation. So instead of just like playing it off, no, in front of her entire family, she just decided to explain to me where the G spot was <laughs> on a woman, right? <laughs> in Spanish, like, oh man, you know, got this like student from the United States that needs help, right? Let's, let's explain where this, oh my God. Man. He doesn't just need language help, <laughs> yeah, apparently. Exactly, exactly. We need to introduce him to a couple of like local girls here. To let them figure this out. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. yes. You wouldn't have known necessarily to say the bar known as right, when you were when you were adding that in. I mean, that's actually a really great example of how uh, even words that we don't expect will have multiple meanings, have multiple meanings. Uh, I read a, 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 an assertion one time in a linguistics book that basically said that like words having multiple meanings is, is effectively the, de- the default state of words. We think of them as being, you know, like an apple is just an apple, right? It's a fruit that comes off a tree. Well, so happens that one of the most valuable companies in the world is Apple. Uh, it so happens that the Beatles record label is Apple, right? I mean, there's there are so many other things that go into that. You say, think like the apple of my eye or an apple a day, right? Like those things mean totally different things from the physical fruit that you're, you know, think of when you think of the word apple in isolation. Yep. And it's that way with almost everything you can think of. And that must then play into how you think about instructional design. Like, uh, like the main question of this talk was, you know, how to essentially you know, getting over the fear of, of learning a new language and, 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 interacting with folks because once you do that and those doors open then it's incredible then like mm-hmm. life gets so much mm-hmm. easier yeah. right yeah uh and so so knowing that and creating educational products that intend to get people over that fear knowing the fact that this word doesn't necessarily mean this thing it depends on the context must it must be built in and baked into how you structure these programs. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, one of the things that I think uh, I grapple with a lot uh, when I in my work is uh, how to get learners, how to be confident that we're getting learners to focus on the things we want them to focus on. Um, you know, if you've used our commercial product, the app, it's it's fr- the, it's frequently association of text, audio, image. And uh, while there is some limited translation, uh, traditionally our method has been to sort of downplay uh, the role of translation and learning. And that is good in, in some ways. Like it, it certainly fosters learners kind of leaving behind that expectation of one-to-one mapping, which mm-hmm. I think is really, really important. Uh, but it provides challenges for us who are structuring that content to make sure that every learner who looks at that photo is going to get the same takeaway from it that, oh, we're supposed to be talking about a book here, right? 
regardless of what the, the learner's native language is, you know, the concept book, not necessarily the word book. Uh, and, and that even extends to some of the projects we work on internally. I had a, uh, uh, a contractor who was working on, uh, some French work for us once upon a time. Uh, and she was having a really hard time figuring out how, uh, X text map maps to Y photo. And it, it came out that she just didn't see in the photo what we all internally saw in the photo. So we had to do something about that. I mean, you know, it's, it's a great check on any one individual mind looking at something and saying, yeah. I think this is how learners are going to understand it. Then you have somebody comes along is basically doing kind of a quality control thing and saying, well, I don't see that. Uh, yeah. And then you've got to go back and rethink it because the goal is to reduce distraction, right? It's to get alert, the learners to focus on the thing you want them to focus on so that you can confidently know that that learner knows that thing and then build on it later on. Use the known vocabulary, the known grammar structures to then introduce more vocabulary, more grammar structures. Well, I think, man, what you said about, about even the choosing an appropriate photo and I think book books a pretty good example because you you want to you want to get across the concept of a book, not necessarily the word book. And I think that's a really insightful distinction. Yeah, um, totally. And it and it gets way harder when you start dealing with more abstract things. So, mm-hmm. like, how do you how do you the word love? You know, like what do you do? How, how do you come come across? Like, it's interesting. Uh, it's actually, that's a great example because love is such a psychologically laden term, not just in American culture, uh, you know, but in, in, in humanity, right. For our species. So they, they typically say that like the ancient Greeks had four different words for love because it depended on what kind of love you're talking about. Um, so that's also a consideration, you know, is, is romantic love the same word in your, in your target language as, uh, you know, the love of your parents or the love of your country, mm-hmm. uh, or the love of, for your friends. Right. Uh, and the reality is it's not those, those are, those are different things. Those are different concepts. And sometimes those concepts use the same word. And sometimes those concepts use different words. It's not just for love. It's for everything out to, you know, uh, the color blue, for example. Yeah. So, uh, in Russian, there are two different words one for uh, lighter shades of blue and one for darker shades of blue. Uh, and they're not, they're not interchangeable. They're kind of mutually exclusive. And, you know, in English we think, well, that that's kind of weird because we just say light blue and dark blue, but think about red and pink. Uh, you know, pink is uh, essentially a form of light red. Uh, so, but we have a totally separate word for it. So, you know, uh, it, these differences are interesting, sometimes surprising, but then when you think about them a little bit more, it's like, eh, is it really that surprising? Why couldn't they be two different, uh, two different words? Yeah, exactly. Like it's just one structure, you know, one way of thinking that we're brought up with, but you have to really adapt yourself. Like we were talking about earlier, like wipe the slate clean and, and tackle these concepts and understanding how to communicate these concepts from a completely different plane, you know, a, and, and that is, I think that's tough for people to do. Uh, and by the way, let me, I'll just throw this up. Cause, uh, so Claire says, um, that sh- her partner's native German. So she's trying to learn, uh, partly to be able to have a Google translate free conversation with his mom. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, Google Translate is also uh, that I've used for a lot of like writing, direct like uh, picture taking and writing. Yeah, you know, you might, you can probably guess what my feelings are about Google Translate. (laughs) It can be a useful tool in certain contexts, but ironically, Google Translate lacks context that you don't plug into the input. And so, you know, going back to this idea of most words have multiple meanings, and sometimes those differences can can be just shades of meaning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to, you know, diametric opposites or having nothing to do with each other. And so, you know, you can throw the wrong word in and then somebody either doesn't have any idea what you're talking about or maybe you've just invited them to give you uh, an education you didn't anticipate. <laughs> Turned it into a sex ed class. <laughs> uh, well, so as you, as you think through this, I'll pull this up too, like... Uh, the, the actual instructional design mean that it, essentially you're creating the process for individuals to get all the way from like point A to point Z in their quest to learn language? Or is it also, or is it more of a, <clears throat> is it tackled in stages? Like, how do you guys, how do you think about it personally? Yeah, I mean, I think instructional design definitely itself has d- different meanings to different people. Um, you know, I think that uh, one w- way that it's typically used is sort of in terms of internal training for companies, right? That, that people will hire people to design internal training modules. It's like an HR function. Um, in, in how I conceive of the role in, in, in my job, um, I'm trying to solve a small problem or a big problem. And I mean, in scope, not in terms of severity, uh, you know. How do we teach learners when to use uh, I am going to the store versus I go to the store? That's a small problem in in terms of scope, right? Uh, You know, the difference between when native speakers of English use am going when they use go. And then there's the big questions that the commenter was just talking about. And, you know, I am lucky, fortunate to be able to intervene on a bunch of levels within that hierarchy. Um, you know, I, I believe pretty strongly in uh, kind of public speaking principles uh, attached to, uh, to language learning. Tell them what, you, what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Uh, because just because you've exposed a learner to a concept, just because they've demonstrated that they can get uh, practice activities correct or even pass an assessment, doesn't mean they're going to retain that in the future. So there also has to be this notion of not just teaching somebody the word for book and never mentioning it again. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that learners need reinforcement. It's just like, again, going back to the, the idea of language as a skill. So you learn to play a musical instrument. You don't learn to play a G on your saxophone and then not play a G anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's just a, it's a tool in the toolbox of, of things on the greater risk with like to tackle the greater responsibility of communicating your feelings with the rest of the world. Sure. And, you know, I think instructional design can be kind of that narrow focus or it can be the broader focus. You know, we tend to call that curriculum design uh, uh, in, in my uh, company where you're talking about, okay, what does the getting from point A to point B look like uh, for the learner in, in broad strokes? And understanding like what that point B is, because I also would imagine that not everybody just wants to be fluent 
to speak to their, you know, like partner's mom. They, you know, yeah. uh, Wanting to be, wanting to be able to talk to your partner's mom, which is highly laudable, uh, again, energy focused, uh, kind of, uh, language learning purpose. and, And that's great. You know, it's language for the purpose of connection. Uh, but you know, when I was in grad school, uh, I had to take classes in reading, uh, languages that weren't my language of study and weren't my native language because you need to be able to read scholarship, uh, associated with your field of study. That's not written in either of those languages. So, you know, people, people need reading knowledge. People learn, a lot of people learn English, uh, for career purposes because they want to, you know, make a better life for themselves. Um, and you know, Part and parcel with that is learning about business culture, you know, whether it's uh, in the UK, uh, internationally or in the US. Um, And those goals can be very, very different from wanting to talk to your partner's mother on the phone Yeah, uh, with very different, you know, lots of languages have uh, formalized uh, grammar structures in place for whether you're talking to, you know, an intimate peer uh, versus whether you're talking to the CEO of your company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Japanese uh, has one of the sort of more elaborate systems there where, you know, who you are relative to who you're talking to can have a, a bunch of different uh, uh, forms. Does it totally change like uh, the endings of nouns? Like we were talking about cases and things like that. Is mm-hmm. that how that works? Uh, I'm not going to get into details. Japanese. <laughs> it's very far afield from the stuff that I do, but I understand that the, the honorific system uh, the, the politeness registers are broad and diverse. Now, bringing it back to something I feel like I can talk a little bit more authoritatively on, uh, German and French. So it's, it's simple, but it's still more complicated than English. If you are using a familiar form, if you're talking to somebody with whom you are familiar, you use uh, one form. In, in French, it's tu, and in uh, German, it's du, uh, which... Those things are sound similar because they are actually related. Uh, but if you are talking to people you don't know or people you are associating with in a professional fashion, so it's not familiar uh, in that in that sense, uh, then you use a different form, uh, uh, vous in French and z in German. And uh, if you mess that up, there could be consequences. <laughs> Uh, and they have different, uh, different verb conjugations associated with them. They're, they're, they're like different parts of the way that you conjugate a verb. So, um, you know, that, that, that distinction is what we call grammaticalized. It's, it's, it's a social construct that then becomes part of the grammar. And I would imagine that it's, it's almost like a diode, right? Where it's, uh, where it's really bad if it, if it goes one way and it's not so bad if it goes the other. So like, (laughs) So like, for instance, if you use the very, very formal version on your friend, they're going to maybe be flattered and stuff, but it won't be that (laughs) big of a deal. But instead, if you did the opposite and use the incredibly familiar form with your boss or like the CEO Mm -hmm, of a mm -hmm, company, mm -hmm. something like that, then you can kiss your career goodbye or, you know, whatever. I I mean, I can't speak for every situation. I I know that in my experience, uh, Germans tended to be pretty relaxed about uh, Americans making mistakes ab- about do versus z. Uh, I had the privilege to spend Christmas while I was over there with uh, essentially a host family. They were kind of like friends of friends of friends. 
Um, and uh, the patriarch of the family, as we're celebrating Christmas that day with an amazing, wonderful spread of delicious food, uh, you know, we're sitting back having a glass of wine afterward, and he he uses do with me because he's not used to having people to use Z with in his house on Christmas day. Uh, and maybe he had had a little bit of wine. Uh, and then he immediately felt terrible and he apologized profusely for using this familiar form with this person that he barely knew. And, you know, from an American perspective, I'm like, whatever. Right? I don't you care. <laughs> if anything, I'm the one who's flattered that you are now kind of, thinking We're of friends. me in this a relaxed kind of way. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you will see, you will experience that in a bunch of different ways. Uh, when you travel to countries where, you know, using th- that there is a right pronoun to use and are in the right, in the right context. All right. Well, so <clears throat> man, I feel like I could talk about this forever all day, but uh, let's, I'm curious because with all of your experiences living with host families abroad learning different languages now instructional design with the stone uh, how do you answer this question i'm like for those that are listening and want to break down a place to start with the language that's what i really like to uh to to talk about and this question is meant to sort of draw that out right if you had to prioritize your advice uh on how you can overcome fear of learning a language and actually get started maybe had to do it all over again let's say i don't know you were gonna learn um, a a really obscure native american language Mm -hmm. or you know something brand new Mm -hmm. what would you do i would start off remembering a sage piece of advice from a little green puppet uh (laughs) so Yoda uh, says in Empire Strikes Back, you must unlearn what you have learned. Uh, And I think that that gets really deeply at the heart, not just of language learning, but of so many things. Um, You know, the information that's stored in our brains about our native language is enormous. Like we have no concept because so much of it is unconscious. Uh, And that unconscious knowledge, precisely because we're not aware of what we know, it tends to kind of bias us against information that we're not used to getting, right? Like, how is that R pronounced, right? Uh, 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 you know, do I need to use which pronoun here? Uh, you know, what vocabulary item uh, is the right vocabulary item to choose here? Um, you're learning how to set aside your assumptions of how language works, right? Uh, and, and that's really kind of an act of mindfulness, I suppose, when you apply it to this question, right? One thing you can do every day, remind yourself, remind yourself that you are kind of deconstructing a lot of assumptions in your head about how language works and how thought works, uh, and then reassembling them in a way that's totally different. Um, You know, it, it, part of that process is not being afraid to try and not being afraid to fail. And, you know, that has broad application in lots of things, but in language, I think people are so, um, possessive, uh, you know, what you say is part of your identity in a sense, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you simply can't be afraid to fail. I read something recently that said that um, a foreign accent is an act of bravery. Uh, and I think that's really true. You know, you're putting yourself into a situation where, you know, you have no idea how people are going to respond to you, but you are trying. And as long as you're making that effort, you know, and, and being mindful and being respected, respectful, um, 
you're going to find that most people are willing to work with you. And honestly, some people would be really enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Because I mean, I feel like it's so much easier to just not try, <laughs> you know, like it really, you have to go the extra mile, but it's so worth it. Um, yeah. Unlearning what you've learned and then understanding that you can, that you can have the same, like, like a really great. So this is it personally. Um, when I, like I was an exchange student in South America, I lived with a host family for a year and you go through stages of the learning process. And just like you're saying, when you have to unlearn what you've learned at first, you, you just try to map it. Like I would carry on. This was before, you know, Google translate. And, uh, I don't even know Rosetta stone I'm sure was around, but I didn't even have a computer to be able to use it. Uh, straight up dictionary that you would carry around book in your pocket. Uh, conversations would last 10 times longer than they needed to because you were just looking up words. The <laughs> uh, but, but first you one-to-one map, then you start to not have to do that so much, but you're, but you're saying it in the wrong way. You know, mm-hmm. you're still mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. directly translating what you would say in English to Spanish. So to speak. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a point where you start to realize that you can say things completely differently and people still understand what you're trying mm-hmm. to get across. Totally. And at that point, you don't necessarily have to think so hard anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that I'm not like actively thinking about how I'm forming English words and communicating with you right now, right. the same sort of flow happens with that, with that foreign language. And it's just, once that happens, oh my God, it's like you dream that first time in a language and then you're like, man, I think that I'm totally getting this thing. And just like you yep. said, you, you figured out this new way mm-hmm. of communicating that's far from what you've been taught because you had to unlearn everything first in order to learn this, this novel kind of concept. So, yeah. And that process is hard. I'm not saying it's, it's easy, uh, but it does get easier that, you know, the more you get used to it, like any habit you're trying to form, right. The more you get used to it, to, to the ambiguity, to the incompleteness, uh, to asking questions, the easier it gets. Um, you know, I would say to, to anyone out there who's watching and is, you know, wanting tips, uh, there's a lot of things that I could say that everybody else would say to you, right? Do it regularly, have uh, reference materials on hand, etc. Um, forgive yourself when you make mistakes, right? Because everybody's going to, and that's okay. It's totally okay. If you, uh, if you're engaged in communication with somebody, they're going to try to understand what you're saying because nobody likes not understanding what the other person is saying. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people blame themselves and their, you know, lack of faculty, uh, and then give up on learning a language. And the reality is it's hard for almost everybody. Uh, so, you know, go easy on yourself. I like that process. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Uh, because it'll pay off that door will open and you'll, and you'll, you'll walk through it with this sense of self love and, and then you'll be able to, yeah, then you'll be able to avoid embarrassing, you know, conversations with your host mom. Uh, or you'll be able to tell great stories about them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, man, this, this has been seriously, uh, 
So good. I um, tell everybody if they'd like to, what's the best way to get in touch with you, connect with you if they've got some questions mm-hmm. or uh, they just want to reach out and practice some German with you? What do sure. you think? So uh, I do not have like uh, a huge social media presence, uh, but I am on LinkedIn. Uh, I think you can find me with the same photo you used for the for the promo. Uh, and uh, my email, uh, personal email is keller.benjamin at gmail.com. Uh, so, uh, you can get hold of me that way too. Oh God, you put it out there, man. Now you're just going to get bombed. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I get lots of messages in my email. I would much rather they be interesting questions from people than that they be, uh, you know, uh, ads from such and such a place. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Totally. Uh, this is honestly, man, this has been so good. Christine, uh, was really into the life hack, the thing that you said about use the known supplement with the new. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's going to use that. Let's see. Sterling says, thank you so much. Lyndon uh, said, be prepared for the onslaught <laughs> for, your, <laughs> for your inbox. Um, let's see. Will you read? What language will you read first in your inbox? So uh, um, I have no idea what she's asking with this, but I am curious. Uh are you going to learn a new language anytime soon? Hmm. I really need to improve my Spanish skills. I say, I say repeatedly to myself and I have said to my friends, like, it's kind of embarrassing that my Spanish is not better. Um, so that, that would be the primary, uh, target for me. Um, you know, wish list sort of thing. I'd love to be able to plot myself on a Greek Island for six months and get good at Greek. Dude, that would be, uh, that would be amazing. Uh, EOS was my favorite mm, that I went mm-hmm, to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Um, Andy says, uh, great info. Thanks guys. Yeah. You're welcome, Andy. Um, honestly, this was uh, such an awesome conversation. I'm so appreciative that you took the time to be here. So Ben, thank you so much, man. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you. As I love being able to talk about this stuff. So thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And, uh, and that wraps it up. The uh, the first official interview from Albatross. I think it went pretty well, to be honest. Uh, uh, I so enjoy this. If you guys want, um, I'm going to start updating more with the interview process and start pushing out uh, more notifications of who's coming up. So if you're not on the email list to get those notifications, just go to joshcorporal.com and sign up. You'll get everything. You'll be in the loop. And, uh, and that's it, man. Go say hi to Ben and, uh, Ben, thanks again, man. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, guys have a fantastic day and, uh, catch you on another episode. All right. Adios. Bye.